I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. You've likely seen pictures of bread lines in the early 1930s, at a time when people relied on private charities to support them during terrible economic downturns. But of course, the social safety net at that time was as threadbare as the clothes of the children in those photographs. In the post-World War II period, governments in richer countries stepped up to support many of those struggling due to economic hardship. Although there has also been retrenchment away from this support in many countries, including the United States. Now, the social safety net is more important than ever, as unemployment has reached its highest rate since the Great Depression. To talk about the social safety net in the United States, I'm very pleased to welcome to Econofact Chats one of this country's foremost experts, Professor Diane Schanzenbach. Diane is the director of the Institute for Policy Research and a professor in the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University. Diane, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks, Michael. Diane, let's start off by defining the term social safety net. So in the United States, our social safety net is really a patchwork of different programs that support people who are facing economic hardship. And together, it has to do two things. First is address longstanding and structural poverty. Think of that as helping people who are persistently poor. And it also needs to expand to address more episodic events like things that happen during recessions or other economic shocks. Or right now. Particularly right now. How does the social safety net in the United States differ from those in other rich countries? You said it's a patchwork. Is it not the same in other countries? Well, our safety net in the United States is generally less generous and more directly tied to topping up earnings from employment. We really like to encourage work here in the United States. Of course, another important thing is that we don't have universal health insurance, which is particularly salient right now during the pandemic. And a feature that we've been working on understanding more from a research perspective is how a safety net that's increasingly built on work and rewarding work helps or more likely fails to help families during recessions. So I imagine there are some shortcomings from that. What are those? Yeah. So over the last 20 years or so, we've made this dramatic shift so that the safety net has primarily been aimed at promoting and rewarding work and has provided relatively little assistance for families that are not employed. A big part of this is the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is the single program that lifts the largest number of children out of poverty, but it's only available to families when their parents are working. And this program has replaced cash welfare, which used to be one of the primary sources of, of insurance of the safety net. The system has a lot of upsides during good economic times, but it also means that the earned income tax credit and other programs aren't structured to provide poverty relief at all during recessions when unemployment is rising. So, Diane, what programs do help those people who are out of work? 
Okay, so there are two programs that are most important. The first is SNAP, which we think of as the most universal of our social safety net programs. It's available to those who work as well, well as those who are unemployed, the elderly, disabled, all sorts of people, anyone with an income low enough to qualify. So SNAP used to be called food stamps, right? That's right. And it provides benefits every month to low-income families that you can use to buy food at grocery stores. Now, the second piece of this is the unemployment insurance system, which provides cash payments that replace a portion of your lost earnings when you lose your job. But the glitch with the system is that the unemployment insurance system provides less assistance to the working poor who lose their jobs. It was basically built for an earlier time before so many low-income people were working. Why is it that it provides less to uh, low-income workers? Well, so two reasons. The first is that benefits are proportional to earnings. And so if you had low earnings to start, the replacement value is, is pretty low. And that's the truth unless Congress acts like it did at the beginning of this pandemic with that $600 top up. The second is that generally those who have low levels of prior earnings or don't have very consistent work histories often aren't eligible for unemployment insurance. And some of the details of that is going to vary across states. So are things different now, given how quickly unemployment is spiked? You talked about that $600 top off. Are there other things as well? Sure. So one thing is what's been going on in the background, which is over time, low-income people, SNAP recipients, et cetera, are more likely to be employed. And that means that they're more likely to qualify for unemployment insurance under the normal rules, which require you to have the sufficient work history, which is a complicated piece that Phil Levine and I talk about in our recent EconoFact piece. Now, the second is that Congress during this pandemic, not only topped up with that extra $600 a week, but also started a new program that expanded access to unemployment insurance, making more people who are either self-employed or have low levels of prior earnings eligible for unemployment for the first time. And that has helped, but it's not come without hiccups. Well, so generally, I guess that's good news for those thrown out of work, but, but what are the hiccups you're talking about? Yeah. Well, it should be good work for sure, but you can imagine it was pretty hard to start a brand new social insurance program in the middle of a global pandemic when, you know, when offices were shut down and people needed to social distance, et cetera. And so what's happened was, a, I think, a substantial share of low-income job losers either haven't received unemployment insurance because they gave up because, you know, you had to, you know, keep calling and keep calling and keep calling or it just took them an exceptionally long time to navigate the system. And if the relief payments aren't coming for you know four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, that's going to put a lot of strain on you in the meantime. So, Diane, I know that this fits into your longstanding research and your focus on policies that are aimed at improving the lives of children who are in poverty. To begin with, what's an estimate of how many children, in fact, live in poverty in the United States at the end of 2019? So we're all waiting to learn the answer to that, which we will find out next month. Uh, but in the end of 2018, which is the most recent data we've got, about 16% of U.S. children, that's nearly 12 million children, lived in families with incomes below the poverty line. It's important to note that the social that number would be worse if it weren't for the social safety net, which lifts many, many children and families out of poverty. 
has the United States been able to reduce child poverty over the last, I don't know, three, four, five decades? Sure, over the long haul, we've certainly done that through a combination of the war on poverty, which introduced a lot of the aspects of our social safety net, like SNAP, what used to be known as food stamps, and also these programs that have incentivized women, especially to go to work and you know have their incomes topped up by the earned income tax credit. But generally, we do a lot worse on this than other wealthy countries. Uh, for example, the United Kingdom cut its po- child poverty rate in half over a decade. Canada seems to be on a pretty similar trajectory after introducing its child benefit in 2016. And we could do the same. But we don't have the political will. It sure seems to be that. So you likely know that the National Academy recently put out a report that estimates that we could cut child poverty in half with about $100 billion in annual spending. That's a large investment for sure, but it's one that would probably actually almost certainly pay for itself down the road. I know that some of the authors of that did an econofact, which I use in my class. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's one of our uh, very good pieces. Um, has the pattern of those who have been hurt most by the economic fallout of the pandemic led to um, any especially strong relationship between unemployment and child poverty in this downturn? Yeah, something that is particularly unusual about this recession means that kids are particularly at risk. So unlike normal recessions, in this case, more women have lost their jobs. And we have lots of kids in this country who live with single moms. So another recent Econofact piece that I've used a lot in my trying to understand the COVID crisis has found that about one out of every four children living in below median income households have had at least one adult that's lost a job. And about half of these saw that all adults who were working in their households lost their job. It's a huge shock. Yeah, that was a very striking memo. Um, I was really moved by that. That's by a group of researchers at Cornell and the University of Minnesota. Um, Are there any estimates as to the number of children in poverty now that we're six months into the pandemic? And this pandemic, of course, as you mentioned, has caused this uh, unprecedented, precipitous spike in the unemployment rate? So it's a surprising answer. There are a couple of independent predictions that suggest that poverty at the end of this year won't actually go up once all is said and done. The reason for that is because there have been so many relief payments made that unemployment insurance benefits that were topped up by the $600 a week that ended back in July. Also, the economic income payments, sometimes called the stimulus checks, all of those have topped up family earnings or family incomes. And it looks like we might not actually see poverty go up when all is said and done. Yeah, we have an Econofact piece by Phil Levine and Patty Anderson that shows that for especially low-wage workers, this $600 increased their pay by not working. So that really helped you know, cushion the blow compared to what would have happened if they didn't have that supplement. That's um, right. What else should we know about poverty? Well, I want to add two things. One is to remember that it's a binary indicator, which means that some people who had incomes that were below poverty, but kind of close to the poverty line, may have seen a large drop in their income, especially if they're not successful at getting unemployment insurance. And they'd still be below poverty, but they'd be much worse off because they've got lower incomes. But the rate wouldn't change. 
The second so, is poverty is you know this very broad term, but there are gradations that we should keep in mind as well. Exactly. It's, you know, like in your class, if somebody receives a high F versus a low F, right? They're all still flunking, but, you know, there's difference in how much you learned. I don't know if, my, if in my class, the high F is really any happier than the low F. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. The second piece that I wanted to make sure that people understand is that poverty itself is based on annual income, which means that as long as you get a payment by December, if it's in your annual income, it's, it counts against the poverty rate. But since at the beginning of this pandemic, we saw so many payments delayed, you know, it took a while to get on unemployment insurance, to get on SNAP, other programs that, you know, are the same. And so families really had to weather, you know, weeks where they weren't sure if they were going to get money, they didn't have enough money to buy groceries. And there's real hardship that comes with that. Yeah, it doesn't help you much if you have an annual income over um, over the poverty rate or somewhat, you know, quite a bit over the poverty rate, but you still have to eat every day. And if you go through these dry patches, of course, that's very, very difficult. And that brings us to this other point. You have a very recent Econofact memo with Phil Levine about food insecurity during the recent downturn. Can you let our listeners know what is meant by food insecurity and what happened to this indicator of economic hardship over the last few months? Yeah, so food insecurity is unfortunately a wonky name for a pretty intuitive concept, which is that the household doesn't have enough money to buy the food that they need to live an active and healthy lifestyle. And it's typically measured using a number of questions, a whole battery of questions. But during the pandemic, a couple of different surveys have asked just a subset of those questions so we can get you know, some real-time estimates of what's happening to food hardship in families. And so what's happened to that uh, indicator over the last few months? It is without question spiked dramatically. It's hard to make direct comparisons because of the differences in survey, but I think it's fair to say that food insecurity has at least doubled. And about a third of those with kids report that their family's experiencing food insecurity during COVID. Of course, you also probably seen the lines um, at food pantries that have made the news recently. So, and we think demand there at food pantries has doubled or more in many places. So a lot of families are really suffering and suffering deeply. Yeah. So both, you know, the statistics and just the visuals of people lining up all point in the same direction. No, and it's reminiscent of those bread lines that you yeah, talked about at the beginning. Right. Um, food insecurity is linked to poverty, but as we were saying, even those who live above poverty can face a problem. And part of this, as you mentioned, is the problems of different time measurements of uh, poverty being measured over the course of a year, but food insecurity could pop up you know, within a few days, I imagine, if somebody's thrown into a real hard situation. Yeah, that's right. So you can imagine even families that have incomes above the poverty line, let's say that they have a bad month where either their some of their shifts get cut, you know, they have to take time off due to illness that isn't compensated, or they have to repair their car or something like that. Most families don't have, you know, savings in that buffer that would allow them to smooth across that hard time. And so, you know, we see that a lot of families move in and out of food insecurity related to those, those income shocks. 
So you've done some very recent work about filling in the gap left by the absence of school meals. Schools are, for children, an important source, for many children, are an important source of their nutrition. Can you describe some of that recent work that you've done? Yeah, this is one of the things that's made the pandemic even worse for kids because not only are they losing school time, but they're losing those meals. And to respond to that, Congress came up with a new program that replaced the school meals with benefit kind of like SNAP. That was It's called the Pandemic EBT Program. And what we were able to do was use the fact that some states took longer than others just to get that policy up and running. And so there's a lot of variation in when families received this money. And so we're able to look at weekly measures of food insecurity and see, well, when you get this payment, does food insecurity go down? And what we find is that these benefits, pandemic EBT, reduced food hardship experienced by low-income families with kids, and it lifted at least 3 million kids out of hunger. Wow, that's a lot. I mean, this, you know, as you mentioned, this downturn is really distinct in the way with that, with respect to that dimension, that children don't get a chance to go to school and many children are um, really dependent upon that for nourishment. Um, In fact, malnourishment among children is not only heartbreaking, but it has other consequences in the long term, as do other consequences of growing up poor. Can you speak to this point? Yeah. When children don't have enough to eat, they can't concentrate at school. They can't do other things. So they end up with weaker school outcomes, less language. They're learning less math. And what we've learned during this pandemic is we're allowing something like 8 million children to not eat enough every week. That's a more narrow measure than household level food insecurity. They also ask moms, do your kids are your kids not eating enough right now because you don't have enough money for food? And just an unconscionable number of families are saying, yes, our kids aren't getting enough to eat right now. So it has you know, physiological uh, aspects, has emotional aspects, and has mental aspects. It's just really pervasive what happens. Um, other you might than, add to that it's morally wrong. Well, right. That's clearly... A point as well, something maybe economists don't talk enough about. Along with the pandemic EBT, are there other government programs that can target these problems? Sure. We have this whole patchwork of the safety net. So in normal times, the earned income tax credit, SNAP, school meals, all of these things work together to reduce child poverty. But what we've learned or we're continuing to learn during this pandemic is there are real holes in the safety net that require congressional action. So we needed Congress to act to increase the unemployment insurance benefit level. Many of us have been asking them to increase maximum SNAP benefit levels, just like they did in the last recession, which was extremely successful, not only at combating hunger, but it was also really good for communities because people had more money to spend. So this is sort of a pretty clear cut, but a lot of things that are pretty clear cut don't happen because of politics. Um, I didn't mention in the introduction that you're a former director of the Hamilton Project at the Brookings Institution in Washington. And in that role, you dealt not only with the economic features of poverty alleviation programs, but also the political viability of these programs. What did you learn in that capacity that, you know, a professor would not have seen if he or she didn't have access to sort of that window 
and see how, as people say, the sausage is made. So when I was in Washington, I had the opportunity to testify before both the House and the Senate about the food stamp program, about SNAP. And what I learned at the time was that there was great bipartisan support because it does so many good things. You know, it supports the market, it supports uh, families, you know, it reduces their hardship. And what's been a surprise to me is that there had been this great consensus that SNAP does a lot of good, it's efficient, it's effective. And it's now surprising to me that, you know, Senate Republicans, frankly, haven't you gone to their toolkit that they used in the last recession and said, you know, we know this program works, it can be temporary, it can be targeted, let's expand it a little bit. So you're the director of the Hamilton Project from the summer of 2015 to the summer of 2017. And you saw, you know, as the administration changed, I guess, that kind of a shift. Any lessons from that? Absolutely. I think we saw a few shifts. One, of course, is the sort of pulling away from providing support to immigrants and you know families with immigrants that I think has been added to suffering from families. Another has been sort of mixed use of evidence. And I was very proud that when I was at the Hamilton Project, one of the first things we did upon arrival of the Trump administration was joined together with the American Enterprise Institute and put out a full-throated defense about how important it is to have facts in times like this and what an important role that the statistical agencies like Census and the Bureau of Labor Statistics play in helping us understand what's going on. Yeah, the American Enterprise Institute is seen as sort of right-leaning and Brookings is seen as left-leaning. We had Michael Strain on a previous Econofact Chats and he presented very good evidence about state and local finances. Well, Diane, you know, we can only hope that the evidence that people like you provide and hopefully Econofact provides are pieces of information that do help make better policy. So I want to thank you for the important research work that you've done in this area and also more immediately thanking you for coming on to Econofact Chats. Thank you. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.